When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments and spectacular structures such as the Great Pyramid of Giza or the tremendous Lighthouse of Alexandria were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. Other magnificent sevens recognised the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal and so on. Or awesome wonders of the natural world, such as the Grand Canyon, the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the comedian and actor Hugh Dennis. In an extensive TV career for more than 15 years, Hugh has been a fixture on the panel show Mock the Week. He was also the hapless husband and father in the domestic comedy series Outnumbered and has had significant roles in the groundbreaking Fleabag, as well as more traditional sitcoms My Hero and Not Going Out. Since his days as a student, he's been in a comedy partnership with Steve Punt. Together, they've been presenting The Now Show on Radio 4 for what must be several decades now. Uh, so, Hugh, um, so uh, I'm making that distinction between being a comedian who can come out with quips on a panel show or stand-up <laughs> comedy and an actor who can act. So you've got both of those. Did you, which, which, which came first and did you always want to be a performer? No, I, I didn't want to do any of it, frankly. Um, it was a very sort of happy accident. So when I, um, when I left university, I went into marketing until I was about, how old was I when I left? I suppose I was sort of 27 or 28, I suppose. So you had a proper job selling, uh, what, it was Unilever you worked for, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, so I... Domestic um, products? Yeah, it was all uh, personal products. So I worked on uh, toothpaste. I marketed, I launched actually one of the shortest-lived toothpastes in British history, a thing called Mentadent Gel, which was for children lasted i think about three months before it was pulled off the shelves but i ended up I sliding... admit, i've never heard of it so no. the marketing wasn't really <laughs> no, it really wasn't it had the strap like this may be the reason it went <laughs> mentadent gel be chums with your gums that was the uh, that was the line <laughs> you can that understand was first, its lack of success that was your first bit of writing ever ah, be chums with your gums. brilliant um <laughs> but then i ended up as the brand manager of links but I was doing I was doing comedy at the same time. I had a rather odd introduction to it all, really. So I started in uh, Footlights in Cambridge, and then at the end of that, I, I had no idea you could do it as a career. Really, I was sort of tremendously naive in that respect. So I uh, I got a proper job, but carried on working with Steve throughout that period. Yeah. 
But the, the point I was trying to just just address early on is that you know being an actor in a in a sitcom or a play or even playing a part in an in, I don't know an advert even those are there's a slightly different skill to that than just being you know a bit droll about the week's news or or a j- joke and a bit of banter that so that that acting skill you didn't go to drama school or anything like that to to get that perfected no i didn't do any of that actually and and that's you know i i suppose i started as as a sketch actor um rather than a stand up and i don't think i've ever been a stand up really and i don't think i've ever really quite known what it is that i do which I think is probably true of lots of people, but um, no, but it's great. I mean, it, it's brilliant to be able to do both in a you know fairly modest sort of way. Well, I don't know. You, I'm, they say you are modest, but I your achievements aren't uh, modest. But let's let's get on with the the wonders of the world uh, because that's the point of this uh, podcast. What, what's your first wonder? Well, I have um, clearly I've developed a list of seven wonders. I'm not quite sure which order to put them in. All right. Well, I'll help you the the order because I I was working on the list that you sent in, and your first one was the ball. Well, uh, the ball I think is a is a proper. And incidentally, in all the wonders of the ancient world that you talked about, I find many of them very disappointing. Have you visited many of the wonders of the world, the original ones? I mean, clearly not the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Or it, were they one? There aren't. They are. They do, other than the uh, other than the uh, the. The Great Pyramid, they've all gone, so you can't you can't visit them anymore. But do you not think that the Great Pyramid itself is rather, um, you know, it's sort of disappointing, isn't it? I mean, in the sense that it's it's in a suburb of Cairo where you would – it looks ex- in exactly the spot where you would now put a pets at home. If that was in England, <laughs> it's in exactly that area, sort of suburban Cairo. It doesn't detract at all from the building of the pyramids, but – you know, you don't go there and think, "Wow, this is absolutely amazing." <laughs> this uh, this is an unusual start for you, Hugh. I, I think because we're supposed to be doing your wonders, and you're attacking other people's wonders. Well, I- <laughs> <laughs> Hugh, I want to get onto your wonders, and so I, I, I'm going to have to. I'm going to apply some rigor to your wonders. Okay, they are the nothing like. <laughs> <laughs> they are nothing like the pyramids. So the, the first one um, is indeed the ball. Now, the, the reason I've included the ball uh, is because I think, you know, in all the histories of the world, etc., they go, you know, one of the great advances was the um, invention of the wheel, which enabled travel and transport and enabled the Industrial Revolution through cogs and all the rest of it. And I have always thought, I don't think that is as big a breakthrough as the ball. <laughs> <laughs> Because the wheel is essentially just a, a kind of a two-dimensional version of a ball with far fewer uses, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it, you know, the ball, can you can roll the ball, you could attach it to a cart if you felt like it. You'd still be able to do all the same things like we did with the rollerball wheelbarrow, very unsuccessful invention of the 1970s well that was that was james dyson wasn't it that he, he yeah that was his was. big breakthrough but it, it doesn't seem to and i think he lost control of it i mean not not the wheelbarrow not but the, actual. The, the, <laughs> the actual invention but i was looking around the other day and you don't see them on sale so a ball doesn't turn out to be a vital thing for a wheelbarrow but uh, no but it, it essentially the, the difference between the ball and the wheel is that the ball also enables you to play, doesn't it? I mean, I think that's the key thing about the ball. When I, you know, think of the 
of the amount of time in my life that I have spent either chasing a ball or hitting a ball or throwing a ball or watching people uh, do exactly the same things. I've, I've actually no idea what I would have done with the time had the ball <laughs> <laughs> not been invented. Well, I, have, I sometimes speculate that I might achieve much more in life if the ball hadn't been invented because uh, I have a few friends, not many, but a few friends who take no interest in football, for example. And I think, well, what a huge amount of spare time they've got. They're not rushing to to home to watch a game or to read a report of why Arsenal threw it away in the last five minutes or, or something. They, 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 all that effort is out of their life. They must be able to write novels and to create buildings, do all sorts of things. So, so, But you and I are perhaps in the same category. We do waste or spend a lot of time in, uh, in ball watching. I think it's, I think it's uh, you know, spend, actually. And it, it's even, you know, from early childhood, you know, if if a ball wasn't available, you'd find something that was roughly the shape of a ball. I mean, how much football have you played with an apple, for example, or a, <laughs> or an yes. orange? You don't think of them intrinsically as pieces of fruit. You think of them as balls, which can be can be thrown and trapped and volleyed. Yeah. And you know, it's great. It's just an amazing thing, the ball. Have I remember this right? Were you sort of captain of sports at your school? Were you, were you a big, you know, the, the person that people turn to for for ball games and other sports? I, I well, I played a lot of sports. So I was the, uh, at a school which wasn't terribly good at sport. We should put that. Um, we should say that straight off. I was the. Well, captain. You were the fantastically named school, the University College School. I mean, how yeah. much more stress on academia could they put? No. They could call it an academy, I suppose. University College School Academy. Yeah, <laughs> but it does. <laughs> uh, it does. You know, carry with it a problem in the name, which is that on all forms when you're filling in, you know, application forms for university or or jobs or whatever, there's always a box that goes university stroke college stroke school, and you're meant to cross two out and write the name of your your place of education if you're at university college school you just end up essentially copying the three words out again they think there is something wrong with this this person um no i was captain of um yeah i was captain of rugby and captain of football which we played in in you know one before christmas and one after christmas well that sounds as though you're a very sporty individual it's no wonder you it's no wonder you put a ball on your list this is clearly a you're clearly a champion at sport. Yeah, well, I, I have a, you know, I'm one of those people. If you go and go for walks, for example, I will always take a ball of some sort to throw to keep people occupied. Mainly the dog now, in fact, to be honest, <laughs> rather than myself. Dogs love a ball. Yes. Cats, that- not so much, except in the form of balls of wool, if we're to believe Christmas cards and YouTube videos. When an inflated rubber ball falls to the ground, it bounces back and players catch it on the rebound. This type of ball is at the heart of many games, from basketball to soccer to volleyball. At the core is an inflated rubber bladder, making it starts with a sheet of natural rubber. The factory worker folds it in a specific configuration. He places a die on top and activates a press to force it through the layers, which cuts out the shape. He now has the bladder of a sports ball. He brushes an adhesive around the hole in the bladder and inserts a plug. Okay, so uh, uh, you're, you're pushing an open door as far as I'm concerned. It, it is 
whether you could describe it as a wonder, which you do, or you just regard it as something that's woven into our lives, uh, uh, Ball deserves its place on uh, the, the list. Uh, so let's, get, let's go on to your second wonder, if we may, though. Do you want me to tell you what that is? Yeah, no, you tell me what my second yeah. wonder okay. is, Clive. All right, your second. <laughs> the second wonder that you yeah. provided was the view from Waterloo Bridge at night. Yeah, well... Uh, this is genuinely the case. If there are occasions, and these don't happen terribly often, where I feel a bit sort of low or, um, you know, like life is a bit much or I'm trying to think of an idea or or anything like that, where you get a sort of a block, um, I will drive to Waterloo Bridge at night. You can't really stop anymore. I know that sounds very dodgy, Glove. I can see the... It does. Well, I know. You say, <laughs> well, I feel a bit low. I go to Waterloo Bridge, which, yeah. which is one of, obviously one of many bridges over the Thames, but one I think mm. that used to have quite a big reputation as a, as a suicide uh, place. Yeah. Um, I'm never quite sure if a bridge over a river is the ideal No, no, I think that would be you couldn't, you couldn't terrible. Guarantee. I can assure you I don't go there for that reason in fact exactly the opposite so um i just think london at night this is really the point london at night sort seems to me an incredibly exciting place and i think that waterloo bridge is just the best place to to get that feeling really you know and if we have people if we have people to stay for example and not sort of you know from abroad or you know wherever they've come from quite often will drive them <laughs> through london at night for exactly that reason because it's just really exciting it's much nicer than london during the day it must be said yes i think that's true of almost all cities though isn't it with a few lights on buildings look better uh, you you rub away some of the scruffiness uh, so it, so you're a, certainly someone to go out with stay with you in London and go out with them. Uh, you say, let's have a night out in London. You just drive them to the bridge <laughs> and say, look, it's wonderful. Drive them along the embankment, <laughs> over the bridges, <laughs> back past the Barbican. Oh, yeah. No, it's uh, it's great, but it has it kind of has everything because the – well, I, I mean, I love London because I grew up in London and my, my – my, Dad, who was a who was a vicar, was the vicar of the Isle of Dogs when I was growing up. So I, I grew up by the river, really overlooking uh, Greenwich, and then we sort of moved around London quite a lot. But I've always I've always found it, you know, and the, and the history of it absolutely fascinating <laughs> um, place to live because it's just got so many so many layers and bits and you know different histories and. You know, it's just a. I'm, I'm just delighted that I have grown up here, really. Yes, but as, did your father travel around a bit? Though, did he have different parishes and different places to be? He was a bishop in the end, wasn't he? He was a bishop in the end, but he was un, until I was um, sort of eight or nine. We we lived on the Isle of Dogs, so he had um, prior to that he'd been in Leeds and Kettering in Northamptonshire, which is where I um, was born. But we moved, and I was three months old. Um, but so I that's why you haven't got a wonder. Wonder of the world isn't a view from a bridge in Kettering. It's so <laughs> London has, has had more of an impact on you. <laughs> more of an impact on my life. Um, and then we moved to sort of North London to, for the second half of teenage. But then he was made. Um, then he was made a bishop in Yorkshire and 
to Suffolk. So we we did move around a bit, but mainly it was you know my it was, it was London really until I left home and then my you know sort of parents went off. Really. But it, uh, it was sort of amazing. I mean, I, I sort of almost every aspect <laughs> of London. I've got I've read so many books about. Um, like the lost rivers of London, for example. Oh yes, um, and uh, you know, a history of the tube system <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Which sounds so dull, but actually is in- just sort of fascinating, you know. And how the yeah. city grew up. And most of my degree, actually, bits of my degree anyway, were about sort of the development of settlement. And London is sort of the, like the perfect example of almost all of it. Really. But the view from the view from Waterloo Bridge at night, I think, is just brilliant. You know, because you look one way, you look at the Shard; the other way, you look at the House of Commons, and you've got the river flowing through. I just think it's a magnificent view. All right, well, I think that's I think that's a magnificent choice. So, um, so excellent. So, you mentioned in passing there that in your degree you studied development of settlement. So, you did three years at university doing geography. Is I did, right? yeah, I did. Yeah. So does that mean you're the a great expert on Oxbow Lakes and the and the capital cities of South America? What what, what do you do in three years of, of of geography? Well, you have to do a bit of physical geography in the first year. So geography at school, when I was at school, was mainly kind of physical and Oxbow Lakes, yeah, and uh, glaciers and you know river formation <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you have to do that for a year at university, but then you can kind of leave that behind and start doing uh, economic geography and sort of social history, really. So I ended up doing, I think my uh, my final year papers were the philosophy of geography, which mm. mainly turned out to be that there, there wasn't one, really. Okay. As far as I could work out, I did the economic the economic geography of the post-Stalinist USSR. Yeah. I did a whole load of papers on the Green Revolution in India, so sort of the development of um, of kind of, of crops and uh, the agricultural revolution effectively to provide more food in the in the subcontinent. What else did I do? Well, I think we've got a rough idea. There's, plen- there's plenty <laughs> there. They do, they do sometimes yeah. sound a little bit random collections of things that uh, it's a bit of bit of economics, a bit of geology, a bit of this and that. But I suppose every subject strays into every other subject. Well, sort of. But I think, um, <clears throat> I think geography more than most actually is just a sort of an amalgam of, of bits. And it's largely for people who can't really decide quite what they want to do but it is it is sort of irritating when you're um well i had i lived in sussex for quite a long time and i went to a a dinner party in in sussex and um the the lady who had invited us discovered that i had done geography and actually did quite well at at geography and i got a i got a first First class degree. There's nothing to be scared yeah. at in a first first class degree from Cambridge in geography. Uh, <laughs> but this um, this the husband of this uh, woman had had also got, got a first, but he got it in uh, Oxford, I think, in jurisprudence, which you which is just law, isn't it? So he's like just a yes, fancy name. Yes, it's law. a fancy. They're a bit fancy fancy dans at Oxford. They can't just call it law. Yeah, <laughs> and she said. Um, 
she asked me, she said, what, what, did, what did you get? I understand you've got a first class degree. What did, you get, what did you get your degree in? And I said, well, geography. To which she replied, oh, that doesn't count. It's <laughs> 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 a bit rude. <laughs> he invited me for dinner and everything. Yeah. Um, so there is that sort of feeling feeling around geography, actually, that, that somehow, you know, history and English are, uh, are kind of purer, purer subjects because, you know, but the, only, the only things linking history that links, the only thing that links history together is the fact that it, it studies things that have happened. That's literally yeah. it, isn't it? And English is just stuff which has been written in English. And geography <laughs> is stuff which happens in space, you know, not yeah. space, Dara Brian space, but, yeah. um, you know, just... In Spain, <laughs> that's it. That seems as pure to me as any of the other subjects, really. Work began on the second bridge in 1939. Now, that date might ring a bell because it's the outbreak of World War II. The 500 men who were working on Waterloo Bridge was reduced to just 50 by 1941. That, coupled with bomb damage from the air raids, meant that progress was slow. That is until women joined the workforce. Waterloo Bridge has long had the nickname the Ladies' Bridge, but it wasn't until Dr Christine Wall uncovered photographic evidence showing individuals at work that they were finally recognised. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Join me, Jaguar, the host of BBC Introducing Dance on Radio 1 for my brand new podcast, Utopia Talks. It's a reactive platform to discuss issues that my generation care about in dance music culture and the wider world. I'll be talking to some of the biggest names in dance music, including people like Heidi. The lineups do not need to be 99% male-driven. Mm. There's all these interesting new producers and women that are coming through. You know, all sorts. Yeah. It's like women are speaking out now. And the sensational Bless Madonna. I feel like literally my entire life has led up to this. This is the first event we've had like this, not just in the UK, but really in the Western Hemisphere. And to be able to be here with all of these people who are so happy is just absolutely the biggest, highest joy of my life. 
as well as having the meaty conversations I often have with friends that I'd love you to join in with. There's so much new energy coming out of the pandemic and there's so many like new nights and festivals and everyone's really pushing for this new structure where people genuinely don't feel anxious Mm -hmm. about coming to a club night because of the way they look or the way they dress. It's more about everyone in. To me, Utopia is a perfect moment. It's togetherness, it's the future. I want to live in a more inclusive, equal world and I hope this podcast will build a community and help create change. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Wednesday. Welcome to Utopia Talks. Utopia Talks is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. This leads to your next wonder, though, Hugh, because your next wonder is maps. So this this obviously links with geography. Or as you say, you can call it Earth Studies, but that's just saying it in in English words rather than using classical languages. Geography and Earth Studies are the same thing. But anyway, maps. Tell tell me about maps. Well, I suppose uh, maps have always been a sort of fascination of mine, really. And, And the reason I put this down is kind of is twofold, I suppose. One, because I have been fascinated by them since I was a kid and how how maps help you understand the world in a way that, you know, writing it all down just doesn't. And you can map. You can map everything. And I remember doing um, a course at university where we mapped disease and we did this. We did a study of the cholera outbreak in uh in Soho, where they worked out actually in the end that cholera was this sort of waterborne thing, and that was done by mapping the cases that had happened around this pump in in the middle of Soho in in Broadwick Street by a guy called John Snow. In brackets, not that one. Um, <laughs> and, and he'd not worked out, either. And that, <laughs> yeah, and he had worked out you know where that all the cases of, in this cholera outbreak were linked back to this link back to this pump so kind of you know maps this is maps in a very general sense so it's ordnance survey maps which give you this sort of you know they're just brilliantly detailed view of the world but but the the second reason for for putting it down really is that i noticed this in my own kids really because they they had they just not interested they never use them if i say to my um son he'll go look i've got this meeting in so-and-so street and i'll say well okay so i think you go along conduit street there don't you and then you turn left and you do a right and he'll go i've absolutely no idea what you're talking about i don't know street names (laughs) i don't know anything like that because i just go on google maps as soon as i get out the tube or as soon as I get to the station, I'll turn on Google yeah. Maps and it will tell me which way to go. So it's yes. motivated partly by this, you know, I feel there's a sort of loss. It's a loss that's sort of happening at the moment that people just aren't, don't engage in maps because of sat-navs, because of, you know, GPS systems, that kind of stuff. And I think it, it's just, you know, we appear to be losing a really valuable 
view of the world that way. So even your children who've got your input on this and mm. your evident perhaps constant <laughs> dad's <laughs> enthusiasm for maps. Come on. This hasn't had an effect on them. They haven't if they've probably riled against it or, or pushed against it. I think it. so, yeah. 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 And my my son even read geography and isn't interested in maps. <laughs> What's going on, Clive? So he followed you as far What's as happening? the geography is concerned, but not into the, the No, not you really have, into maps. Do you do you have maps, you know, on your walls, you know, as a decorative item? Do did you take it that far or you um is it just a sort of study and an understand you've got a big book of a to z map books in your car that you consult as you're driving along <laughs> they rather, think, rather than using the sat nav well they they do think it is slightly ridiculous that uh, i have a road book um in the car <laughs> i also think it's kind of funny that you know the government say well we've got this road map out of uh, lockdown because i yeah. think for most people they go no one no one uses a road map <laughs> Let's get with a sat nav out of lockdown. That would make a lot more sense. But a roadmap. And I remember having one, um, I took the kids to, we we drove down um, sort of across the states at one point. And I, it always irritates me, like it probably does lots of parents, that when you're, when you're driving and you, they kind of assume that driving and navigating is all part of the same sort of thing, and they're so used to GPSs and stuff. That I bought a map, I think, of Tennessee or something, <laughs> and they just refused to use it. They were on there. <laughs> so could you please make sure that we get to wherever we're going? I can't remember, like Nashville or something. Yeah. And um, we ended up doing this, like, 90-mile detour because <laughs> we'd missed a turning. And then, then they blame me. They blame me. This does sound like an episode of Outnumbered. <laughs> yeah, it is. You, the it frustrated dad with the kids not not doing things the way you want them to do. <laughs> Beautifully cast. Yeah. 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 Well, the trouble with sitcoms is the, the dad is always the figure of fun. They're always one mm. who uh, trips up on things. It's, it's just always has been, I suppose, always with them. What is it about dads? What, what, why are we well, the subject of... <laughs> because we're sort of faintly ridiculous, really, aren't we? I think. Yeah. We try, yeah. try and convince our children that we know best by... And then obviously... Don't. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm obviously asking you questions about you as a dad and as, uh, you know, the frustration of me. But, but what about you as a son? Because you mentioned your father was a vicar and then a, and then a bishop. Uh, and in Scotland, at least, there's a very strong expression. People say, oh, he's the son of, a, son of the manse. Uh, somebody yeah. like Gordon Brown is always because he came. He was a, a minister's son rather than a vicar. But it's a, and there's a sort of particular type of upbringing that the kids of a, of a religious leader uh, have which either means they become very well behaved or they become rebellious and and uh, fight against it which which were you did you were you ever attracted into um into the church or or, or do you feel a lot of pressure to be well behaved because my dad's the vicar um no not really i mean you you uh, there is an element of kind of being watched you're sort of aware that people know who you are because you know, you're living in the parish of which your dad is the vicar. Um, but no, I never, I think my parents were both very, very aware of the sort of um, pressures on clergy children. So they they didn't really put any any pressure on me and my brother at all, actually, that I can remember. We weren't, I think we went to church. We certainly went to church, but I don't think we were forced to go to church. And um, 
you know, we've, I never felt I had to be tremendously good. Or, and what about just 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 while I'm on this sort of theme? When you started doing comedy and performing either on stage at university and then at um, due course on television, radio, you know, every now and then I would say it was to apply to you as much as anybody. You do the odd rude joke, the odd swear word, the odd the odd thing that attacks institutions, including the church. Did you ever get any um, any wigging from your father or suggestion? Oh, this is a bit strong. Since uh, think about where you come from. No, not again. None, really. I mean, I think he was, uh, they were really, really supportive. I do remember saying to him on one occasion, you know, it's quite difficult in my job having a dad who's a bishop. And he turned to me and he said, and I have to tell you that in my job, it's quite difficult having a son who's a comedian. (laughs) I thought, (laughs) that's fine. But he, when um, when I I did Spitting Image, pretty well straight out of university actually for about four or five series and one of my voices was the Archbishop of Canterbury and this is how relaxed my dad was about it he told the Archbishop of Canterbury that I did I did his voice very proudly told the Archbishop of Canterbury and it wasn't a terribly um you know it was he it was scary and he was kind of a tambourine bashing sort of yeah. evangelical it wasn't a, a great depiction of him but he, you know, that's. Uh, but again, that's the Church of England slightly. Actually, I th- I've, I've, I've met an awful lot of um, vicars and priests and monks and you know whatever. And actually, the one thing that that links them, the ones I know anyway, I'm sure this isn't true. But they they all have you know pretty good sort of sense of humour about stuff. Actually, yeah. I thought it's a slightly odd thing for your father to have done though. He didn't strictly speaking have to tell. His boss, no, no. I suppose, the Archbishop <laughs> of Canterbury. <laughs> My son no. is, is humiliating you on a weekly basis. No, no, he was very proud of it, I think. He was yeah. very proud of it. All right, first stop, Westminster Abbey. <laughs> oh, what the hell is that? That's London, baby. All right, the hotel's here. Wait. No, we want to go. No. I know. I'm going to have to go into the map. Okay, if you see a little version of me in there, kill it. All right, so we've done uh, we've done maps, um, and your th- your fourth wonder is the bicycle. Yeah. Now i I have always had a bicycle um, since. Well, I. Th- I Suppose I'm, you know, as soon as you can ride a bicycle. How old would I have been? Well, you might, you, I should imagine you were an early developer. You'd have been at about three or four or something. But I think I was on the steady wheels for a long time. You don't see steady wheels now, but I was on (laughs) the steady wheels uh, for quite a long time. Um, And I love bikes. And I, again, I think one of the great things which has happened in the last couple of decades, probably maybe even the last decade, is that when I was growing up, there was a point at which, you know, in late teenage or something, you had to give up your bike to look grown up and you had to get a moped and you had to, you couldn't go riding around on a bike at the age of, you know, sort of 20, (laughs) you know, because people would have thought you were ridiculous to do that. You, You had to have a motorbike and a girlfriend by that point. But now you never, ever have to give up your bicycle. You can go right through 
go the whole way through life with a bicycle. It's fantastic. And it's such a good invention. I mean, it's never been, it's so simple, isn't it? Well, I just, I must make it, sorry to be a bit sort of a, of a devil's advocate here. You, earlier on, you were saying the ball was yeah. so much more important than the wheel. And yeah. we're only two or three wonders on. And now you're a bicycle. It's essentially two wheels joined together with a frame. So so the wheel does turn out to be a, a useful thing. You couldn't make a bicycle out of two balls. So, so Well, uh, you, I think you could. But... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be so good at getting through narrow gaps. I'll give you that. Yeah, but, but uh, I know you are a, even at your let's say advanced stage, you're an enthusiastic mm. uh, cyclist. Uh, didn't you cycle round the the Tour de France route uh, not very long ago? Well, there is there is an um, for the French the equivalent of the London Marathon for a lot of French people is a thing called the Etape. Which is, um, but it's on bikes. Clearly, you can't use a bike in the London Marathon. That's no cheating. About you tried, you tried. Yeah. <laughs> um, you make it look like a rhino costume, but it's in fact a bicycle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hidden under the costume. That's a brilliant idea, actually. <laughs> Deep sea diver <laughs> on a bicycle. Um, but anyway, they they do a thing called the Etap, and that is one stage of the Tour de France, so every year. And they do it two weeks or so before the actual race goes through. So the um, – and whereas in the race there are – I don't know how many riders there are in the Tour de France, probably 70 or 80. In the attack, there are 8,000 entrants. And it's generally a, a, a mountain stage. So I did – I've done two of them, both in the Pyrenees. And you – it's about 200 kilometres or so. Mostly up, well, the bits that aren't up are down. There's very little flat. You were going to say mostly uphill, but obviously it's it's roughly equal. (laughs) Although you do finish. I did finish at the top of a a hill on one occasion. And, um, yeah, it's it's great. But I think I did that as a slight um, midlife crisis because I think – if you're going to have a midlife crisis, you might as well have one that lasts twelve hours. That's all it. That's all it is. And then you've yeah. gone. Hmm. But I'm sure your midlife crises have lasted longer than that, even if you include cycling. Because are you one of these guys? I think there's an even a, a cruel acronym about it's uh, you know, middle. It's middle-aged men in lycra, Mammal. uh, mammals who, yeah. who wander around or cycle around uh, uh, the city, shouting at people to get out of the way. Going through red lights, riding on pavements, using the bike lane only when they—are you one of those those people? Um, I try not to be. I do go through the occasional red light. I must—I uh, have to admit that I treat myself slightly as a pedestrian occasionally, even though I'm clearly not on a bicycle. But um, and I do wear lycra. I do wear lycra. But this is—I think you should really only wear lycra when you're kind of out in the country doing a long run. I'm not sure it works in town partially because you have to then to go to meetings wearing lycra and that's not good uh, years ago when I, when I was a barrister i didn't use a bicycle i did have a motorbike and uh, be, the difficulty there was keeping your you know fairly proper looking suit 
clean and dry from riding on a bike and wearing extra shoes. So I took for a while to wearing jeans um, and changing to my suit trousers when I got to, to court. But inevitably, there was a day that I arrived with the jeans and I'd forgotten to bring the correct pair of trousers. Oh, it's a, it's a moot, moot point as to whether a judge can hear you if you're wearing the wrong clothing. But uh, and he, they insist you wear a, a waistcoat and there various other clobber and wig and so forth in court. But uh, I got away with it because jeans aren't a bit like a newsreader. I could, you know, I could, it wasn't. Yeah, he didn't realize that you were wearing them. No, no, I, I had a, you know, a gown as well. So I kept myself wrapped, wrapped around. And I think I would have got away with it anyway, because uh, I could have entertained him with my story of getting to court on a, on a motorbike picture. <laughs> did you win the case? That's the key, key thing. <laughs> of course I did. Uh, you'll know if you've ever spoken to a barrister, they only ever talk about cases that they won. <laughs> Mysteriously, <laughs> lost cases. Can... Yeah, you never lost one. <laughs> no. No. Never talk about them. <laughs> it was not until the 1860s that someone had the idea of the most simple thing which was to put a set of pedals on the front wheel. The first commercial producer of such machines was the Michaud family in Paris and they started to produce machines in numbers and these were designated and called the Velocipede. They were still wooden wheels made like cartwheels, an iron, a forged iron frame, uh, a suspended saddle front wheel steering. Eventually, the design settled about 1890 into the conventional machine that we recognize today. Anyway, uh, so that's that was a bicycle uh, in your fifth, uh, uh, your fifth wonder, which does take us back, I suppose, I don't know, into the world of geography uh, is the South Downs. Yeah, well, it does. It firmly takes us back into the world of geography, really. So I was, in spite of my cynicism about uh, the pyramids at Giza, I was thinking in terms of, uh, you know, the great um, sort of ancient wonders and how you kind of get affected by things that you see. Right, And I, while pyramids don't do it for me particularly, <laughs> landscape does. I mean, I... I I have this sort of great need for uh, kind of hills and coast and sort of, you know, standing on the top of things <laughs> and being buffeted around by the wind and sort of looking for miles. I, I mean, I just I just adore doing that kind of stuff. And I, uh, you know, whereas most people's version of that, I suppose, in this country would be the lakes or, you know, standing atop the Pennines or in Scotland or something. I have this sort of an enormous affection for the South Downs, and I lived in the South Downs, which is now National Park, um, for about sort of 15, 20 years, really, um, and just love it. It's it's rolling. I could give you the the kind of geological history of the South Downs. I'm you, tempted to ask you, you to do that because that would be if you so more wish. educational than... So, yeah. <laughs> I may be entirely wrong, of course, about this. This is the other thing about geography. It just involves superficial knowledge of an awful lot of things without really knowing any of them very well. But anyway, the, the South Downs is obviously chalk downland, but it wouldn't have started as chalk downland because chalk clearly is, is dead sea creatures and they don't live at the top of hills particularly. So they would have been at the bottom of, a, at the bottom of an ocean or a sea. Mm. Um, 
And then at some point, and this is the kind of interesting thing, I think, about the South Downs, the thing that created the South Downs so the, the, was a thing called the Alpine Orogeny, which sounds very rude, but in fact just was the, was the coming <laughs> the together. Movie, <laughs> <laughs> it was the coming together of, the, uh, of two plates, the kind of Eurasian plate, and uh, another one that I can't actually remember. Now I've come to talk about it. But it, the two plates forced the Alps up and caused the, you know, the, the ground around them to ripple. And the outermost ripple of the thing that created the Alps is the South Downs. Oh. And was, it was sort of uplifted at that, at that period. And then even later, so not only a few hundred thousand years ago, this it created actually a sort of a chalk dome, this final ripple of the Alps, uh, which went from southern England right into France. So it kind of went across to Champagne and, you know, that whole lot was just sort of chalk downland. And then um, at the end of the Ice Age, this there was a lake which was sort of up near Holland somewhere, which sort of burst, I suppose, and the river, which which came from this meltwater lake, carved out the English Channel and cut cut the hole in this enormous chalk dome. So you have similar landscapes in northern France and in southern Britain of just beautiful sort of wavy chalk, which wasn't originally wavy. And, and but what, what I could, if I could just tie the question to the idea of wonders, a lot of people walking along the South Downs, let's say, would say, well, mm. this, is a, this is a wonder of nature. This is absolutely fantastic. Mm. I've got a view over there, the chalk just beneath the, the cropped grass, uh, the, maybe things have been carved. It's such a wonder. But you bring a, a sort of an intellectual or academic understanding of why it is where it is. Does that make it seem more wonderful because it involves, let's say, thousands of years of geological time? Um, producing this result or or does understanding it become sort of it's less of a wonder more of a oh yes that's quite interesting and that's uh, that's why the chalk stream goes in that direction do, do you know what uh, I mean yeah I do I think it makes it feel more uh wonderful actually because you um you sort of un- a, a sort of a vague understanding <laughs> terribly vague understanding of the forces that create it sort of and this sounds terribly sort of crass but it, it does kind of put everything in into perspective and i sort of i kind of hate saying that really but you you sort of realize um that you, you know you being here me me being here everything being here towns being here this landscape being here we're just these tiny sort of little points in time aren't we compared yeah. with this with this sort of hole and it's not going to stay like this that's one of the things i think about when you're on the south downs it, it, everything feels terribly static doesn't it so you think yeah. oh the south downs will always be there the 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 grampians will always be there that will, but they they won't you know, no. we we won't, but they'll they'll constant. It's constantly changing in such a subtle way that you don't really know. I mean, I'm I'm amazed always by this fact that the you know that the hills in Scotland <laughs> were as high as the Himalayas and are now the lowest, pretty much in Europe. It's always slightly embarrassing, isn't it, when you go? Why is the highest hill in Britain? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jenny what Snowden is three thousand five hundred and sixty feet, is it? You know, and we've got yeah. sort of bumps in France 
that are taller than that. But it, it's it's just this idea of 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 timescale. It's just how how sort of massive, you know, these lengths of time are. This whole area was once a huge dome of chalk created by the same tectonic forces that pushed the Alps and the Himalayas up out of the ground. And at the end of the last ice age, a huge swathe of meltwater carved out the heart of the Downs, leaving the Thames Valley to the north and here, the South Downs. So that was your fifth wonder. Uh, your sixth wonder is the days between Christmas and New Year. Yeah. Now, what's this about? What's all that about? <laughs> well, I... Well, I mean, um, I'm saying it like that because most people might say they are the dead years. They are the dead days. They Between Christmas, Boxing Day, maybe good fun. New Year, you might look forward to. But in between, there's a few days. The last person who ever spoke to me about those days, and I'm not making this up, uh, say that in their family... Um, they, they call it the perineum these days, which is that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a medical family, Which is not a compliment. For, <laughs> so what is, um, wh- why do you make them not only popular days, but an actual wonder of the world, a wonder of Hugh Dennis's world? Because they are my favourite days of the year. Because um, if you, when I had, you know, a proper job, when I worked at Unilever, for example, and you go away on your summer holiday and you came back to the office and um, you wanted to talk to people about this fantastic holiday that you'd had, no one was interested <laughs> because none of them had been on holiday, right? And there was a sort of, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that sounds great, yeah. Now, have you got these sales figures for the last quarter? That was how long the conversation lasted. But... Between Christmas and New Year, it's a, it is a time when there is no pressure on you, really, and everyone is on holiday. So, you know, you end up meeting mates and going off and, and, and doing stuff, and everybody, everybody's in the same boat. There's this sort of great collective feeling of, ah, you know, which could be boredom, um, in the case of the family who call it the perineum. But for me, it's just this period of tremendous sort of uh, relaxation because everybody is doing the same thing, except if they're working in a shop, I suppose, when it's probably the most busy time of the year or was before online shopping. (laughs) I just love them. I just love those days. I find them tremendously relaxing and you don't have to you don't you, your phone isn't important because nobody's really calling you and you're not thinking i should be doing something else it's just they're just great they're 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 great days and i think um christmas has a stress doesn't it boxing day has a stress new year's eve has a has the stress of um you know, looking forward and looking back, yeah. and will it live up to anticipation? Yeah, yeah I, I don't yeah. mean there, but but those those few days, those dull days, as people might describe, you like the the lack of stress, the lack of pressure for them to be great. Um, but you know, I'm not sure I follow the holiday point because some people go on holiday at that time, so presumably. Uh, there's there's still the sort of describing oh yeah we went skiing or oh we flew off to this is 
pre-lockdown, obviously. Yeah, but you would. Uh, that's it's slightly different because because everybody is on holiday, aren't they? You will listen to those stories of skiing accidents and um, whatever else is happening. Um, you know, it, it's just it just is a much calmer, sort of more communal sort of experience. I think. I suppose in your grown-up life as uh, as a TV uh, performer, um, th- these are relaxing days because the Christmas special of I don't know, Mock the Week, you know, the year-end special would have been recorded in October or November or whatever. Uh, similarly, when you're in a, <laughs> at a sitcom, the Christmas episode of of Outnumbered that again would have been recorded in August and uh, with mm. people cutting the leaves off the trees to make it look like December. So perhaps that's another reason why it's a relaxed time for you. Yeah, I mean, because nothing happens. I think it is really just that, um, you know, perhaps I'm I'm just one of those people who always feels he has to be doing something, except yes. between Christmas and New Year, when I don't feel I should be doing anything. Yeah, well, you can go and for a walk on the South Downs. Yeah, you can exactly. take your map out, South Downs. Take a as ball long as I can you. get back to Waterloo Bridge of an evening, <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> so has going into comedy transformed your life uh, in a in a, a way, uh, taking it right out of the way that you would have been if if you hadn't been doing comedy with Steve Punt in your spare time? What you might be, I don't know. I'm sure beyond area manager you might be running unilever are you, you, you have, have you got a sort of sliding doors aspect to where life might have been without well possibly i mean i've i um i've never really had a plan i mean i think i'm quite sort of determined once i'm doing a thing but i've never really had a i've never really had a plan which is kind of useful actually because when um when good things happen you go oh this is fantastic i <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, and I think that's sort of that's sort of how I've I've run it. Really, I, d- I also have this this feeling that I would have been happy doing lots of things. I mean, I'd, again, you'll be able to put me right on this, but I quite often thought I would have been quite happy being a barrister. Um, yes, or, I, can, I can see you, you as know, a barrister, or or marketing. I really liked. I I I like lots and lots of. Lots and lots of things, which I think is why I read geography. It's all perfectly coming back. Okay. It's a perfect segue to so many different yeah. things. Can I ask you just one thing about an interesting, I suppose, quirk really of your personal life is that mm. you've spent several years pretending to be married in uh, in um, outnumbered mm. uh, with your with Claire Skinner, and now life now imitates that in the sense yeah. you are with her and in, in a yeah. in a relationship of uh, several years uh, standing. I mean, that's that's must be a relatively unusual. I mean, it, it could have gone either way in, in that. Could you could have ended up in a partnership with Dara O'Brien from uh, Mock- I could have done. But, uh, you know, it, I asked him if we could know. bubble at the start of lockdown, and he refused. <laughs> Um, no, it's great. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's splendid. Uh, and neither of us really sort of expected it to, No, you know, but it, it, no, but it did help because you'd been through a number of the life crises as interpreted by the comedy writers, you know, the Andy Hamilton's the version. <laughs> yeah. Andy Hamilton's yeah. version of a, of a married life. Um, uh, yeah. you, you've already dealt with it and it's, uh, it's not, it means you have a shared history, doesn't it? You know, we go yeah. back, you know, we work together for a long time. Um, 
and that you know so you have memories going back quite a long time which is so which she is can't nice. complain if you start talking about maps and the south downs and and how marvelous i'm not sure i ever is. did that in outnumbered <laughs> rehearsals can you imagine i bet you Claire, did. look at this <laughs> this is an 1815 map of <laughs> Look, here's a church without a tower, you see, yeah. and it's, that's why it's represented. That's a different symbol. A yes, that's right. We get so confused by they've started to change. The, the days aren't called Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Now they're called, you know, Boxing Day, Christmas Eve. So you lose track of it. And you're so full and hungover as well. People just wandering around in a daze. What day is it? I don't even know what day it is. Are the shops open? Do the shops open? Started. I don't know what day it is. Should I start my diet today? Do I start it today? Is there post today? Does the post come back? Can I park here today? What day is it? Can I park here? All right, we've got one more, one more wonder to go. Uh, what, what's the wonder that we're getting? The wonder, this is wonder, and this is only, you know, it's not a wonder, is it? Really? I'm not quite sure why it's there, other than <laughs> the fact that... It, you know, I love it, is toast. I just cannot imagine a world without toast. And therefore, <laughs> no, sorry, it's I'm just become a wonder. enjoying that. You cannot no, imagine, cannot a, world imagine a world toast. without toast. Yeah. You know when they, um, again, this is a slight religious background thing. I remember thinking, even when I was very young, when they went, you know, man cannot live by bread alone. And I thought, well, I think if it was toast... <laughs> I reckon you probably could. It's saved me so many decisions over the years, Toast. You're going, what am I going to eat? No, I'm going to have toast. Um, and off I go. I have a slice of toast. It's amazing. I spent so much money on different toast technologies. You know, different toasters. Oh, you've, you've gone into All this. That. So you, oh, have well, you, you know, got a not... particular form of toasting that you think, think produces the best toast? No, not. I mean, in the end, a toaster's a toaster club. <laughs> no, but you know when you're in a well, I have experimented. Hotels, you know when those hotels that sometimes you... Oh, there's pointless. Buff, yeah. There's a buffet of dozens of different things, if you're lucky. and But there's some people standing next to a little sort of... Um, little device that is sending um, bits of bread along a along yeah, a track point and to be uh, yeah sure you can do without toast once in your life when you've got nine different types of croissant three different porridges bacon eggs and all the other things no I will still go for the taste I'm thinking what is it about hotels that that says they can't have a, a normal toaster that you have to have a conveyor belt that puts it about a foot away from the element. I don't understand that. I just simply don't understand it. Is it? Is it they need to get seven or eight slices in at once? Just get yourself a longer toaster or two toasters next to each other. I think, I, I mean, I don't want to argue about all of your wonders, but, you know, toast has its downside. Yeah. An awful lot of, you know, fire alarms uh, go off simply because the in the college room or the nurse's home or the hospital or the or the hotel, whatever, is because a toaster has produced slightly yeah. too much smoke. And you it's think, true. well, why can't people just have plain bread? You know, if, if, if this is going to cause all this trouble, but this would destroy your happiness if you couldn't have it. Would, it would entirely destroy my happiness. And I also think on that point of smoke alarms and toasters, that, you know, the, that phrase, there is no smoke without fire, I think no one who said that, has ever made toast. There's regularly smoke without fire. <laughs> As there is in a, wet, in a wet bonfire. We all know there's smoke without fire. 
Yeah. Um, it always strikes me about toast, though, that it, I thought it must have been invented really to deal with stale bread, that you never would have started toasting bread until it was a bit off. Oh, well, let's try just cooking it up a bit and making a bit. Oh, it's just about acceptable. I haven't ever seen it as this, you know, the epitome of the perfect piece of food, oh, the way man. you do indeed. Do, do give, me, give toast its due. Nigel Slater, the, the food writer, he, he called his autobiography toast because that was his sort of entry point or one of his entry points into his love affair. It's with one of the simplest food. things to cook. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's be honest, almost anyone could manage a slice of toast. Yes. I must admit I've been asked to provide uh, recipes for celebrity um, cookbooks and things over the years. And for many, many times of asking, I used to always give a recipe for toast, but that was meant yeah. as a satirical take on the whole process rather than an enthusiasm. Did you know, Hugh, that toast was first done to, uh, to put into beer as a flavouring for, for, for drink? That's what toast would was. Would you yes. leave it what, into the barrel? You wouldn't get a pint of beer well, with wherever, a slice of toast wherever. You, you put it in and having it having gone in, you then threw it away. Um, oh, okay. It took, it took some centuries for people to say, wait a minute, don't, we don't just have to do that. We could eat that. That's got a nice smell to it. And that's why a toasting somebody, you know, your good health, that's why that's called toast, is because it came from uh, toast being um, uh, put oh, into a drink. Uh, so it was this kind of beer crouton. Uh, yes, <laughs> but not a, not even a crouton you ate. It was a crouton no. you put in and then threw away. And so did it go in as a complete slice, or did they bother to sort of chop it up into smaller bits to spread the flavour more equally round? Oh, you, you don't know. I'm caught, stretching your knowledge caught, now. You've caught me out. Yes, my, my knowledge, <laughs> thin as it was in the first place, has now definitely snapped. Proceed to introduce heat to your piece of bread by pressing down on the lever. Easy. Now, we just wait a while. What we're witnessing right now is the transformation from bread to toast. What we put in was bread. What we're going to get out is toast. You could take this time and prepare for the next step by putting on these gloves. These are heat and knife resistant gloves. They're very handy and safe to have in the kitchen. Perfect. It's almost a spitting image. Well, look, Hugh, thank you very much for going through your, your seven wonders. Uh, the rules of the game require me to select a wonder of wonders, the, the, the best oh, okay. one. I'm not, I'm not going to make it toast, I'm afraid. I, toast crops up in uh, conversation in my house because I've always kicked back at the idea of you, people say something is as warm as toast. And I well, yeah, warm toast is warm. Toast most of its life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> three, um, three minutes after yeah. it's been made, it's cold again. So anything can be, yeah. it's as warm as something that's warm. But uh, so, uh, I, so I'm not going to have toast on that basis. I think um, with remarkably few duplications of the guests that I've uh, discussed this with, there's just one here that we've discussed before. But I think uh, maps, I'm a big fan of maps as well. And since it relates to your your academic studies and, and and everybody's understanding of the world and the maps can be beautiful things as well as useful things. Um, I'm going to make uh, maps, if I may, your wonder of wonders. But uh, anyway, Hugh Dennis, thank do you I, very much. Do, for, do you send me a map or anything? Do I get? A, is there any? There's nothing. I you will, just say I that will, I don't get sent a map of. Um, I, like I, I, note your, I note your request, <laughs> and uh, I will make sure that in the fullness of time, I, I uh, provide you with a magnificent map in commemoration of this conversation. This moment. 
this particular conversation. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Hugh Dennis, for giving us your uh, your seven wonders. Thank you very much. Thank you. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.